after class for the deacons. Second, next Wednesday night, if you come, you will be alone. Or maybe with one or two other people who didn't pay attention to the bulletin or the announcements. Prayer meeting and Bible class will be same time as usual, but on Tuesday night, I will be going at the end of the week to Cincinnati to speak at a church there. Third announcement, and again a very important announcement, on April 11th, 12th, and 13th, we're, we're having a spring Bible conference, and the speaker will be Mike Gendron. The focus of this conference is on evangelism of Roman Catholics. Mike Gendron uh, was a grew up in a Roman Catholic home. He was actively involved in Roman Catholic Church and ministry as a uh, deacon, layperson, teaching lay classes until somebody squared him away on the gospel when he was about 30 years old, and then he went to Dallas Seminary, got his uh, THM at Dallas, and started a ministry called Proclaiming the Gospel, which is directed specifically to Roman Catholics. We've had several of their tracks out here in the back. Now, I tried to call Mike today. There's one element. If you look at the back of the track, and he says, goes through the gospel, right there about the third point, he says, repent of your dead works. So i got to talk to Mike about that. But we're gracious enough to be able to step over somebody's messed up ideas, because, of course, you know repentance isn't part of the gospel, and um, not to have a problem uh, not to create a problem over something like that because, in this case, somebody's going to come that's going to have a tremendous amount of good information uh, and has a good ministry. He's he's good friends with uh, several people you know, like Tommy Ice and some others. He, I, I've gotten to know him from the Conservative Theological Society meetings and the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group. So he uh, hangs around with uh, real solid people. So, and I've heard many good things about his presentation. It's not a an in-your-face, confrontational type of approach. So, if you have friends or family, and many of you do, who are still enmeshed in the Roman Catholic Church, this would be a great time to invite them out for a little Friday night entertainment. So, for now, we're setting up Friday night class at 7:30. Saturday morning times are still to be announced. Sunday morning will be normal. Saturday, Sunday, uh, excuse me, Saturday morning will probably be around 9 or 9.30, depending on whether we will probably try to get two sessions in on Saturday morning, but I haven't been able to clear up some of these uh, logistical matters with him just yet. By Sunday we should, and you should have that information available on Sunday. So this will be a great thing to uh, tell your friends and family about. We're going to put some publicity in the paper, and usually there's somebody who shows up that's real antagonistic to him. So maybe that'll happen here. Y'all missed it a co- missed the fight a couple of weeks ago when the cult member was here to announce judgment on us. So maybe something fun will happen. You just never know. But he uh, he'll have a lot of really good information. Every all the reports back. Uh, we can't keep those tracks. You know, the one we have Roman Catholicism versus Christianity. That red, kind of a red tracker that he that he wrote that. And we can't keep them in the track rack out there. So apparently that's a very popular 
popular track. Okay, I don't think there's any other announcements. Let's uh, take a few moments for silent prayer. Okay, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we w- I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this opportunity to come before you and to be refreshed through the teaching of your word. It is your word that illuminates our thinking, gives us an understanding of truth, and as our Lord prayed, it is by your word that we are sanctified. It is the Holy Spirit plus your word and working in conjunction in our soul that produces spiritual maturity. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this war with Iraq. We pray that you would... Uh, give uh, wisdom to our political and military leaders. We pray that you would cause our enemies to make foolish and stupid decisions that we might be able to prosecute this war effectively and efficiently and bring it to a a speedy conclusion. We especially pray for the men from this congregation and, and extended congregation who are deployed in the Middle East, and we pray that you would uh, keep them safe and watch over them We pray that they might be an effective witness for you in their jobs and in their duties. We pray that you would give them energy and skill that they might be able to get done and be able to accomplish their mission. Father, we pray for their families here that you would encourage and strengthen them uh, during these times when there's so much that's unknown and so much that that potentially can happen and so much that can cause and create fear and anxiety at home. Father, we pray now as we continue our study in Genesis that you would help us to understand the significance and importance of the issues that we are studying, that we may may gain a better and greater understanding of the importance of the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of origins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At the risk of perhaps boring some people by getting a little too technical... I'm taking a lot of time as we go through this first chapter of Genesis, and that is because this is foundational to the Bible. It's foundational to how you look at everything in life. No matter, and and I will spend some time probably next time developing this thought in much greater detail, but no matter what you think about in life, your understanding of origins and creation impacts how you think about that, whether it is thinking about a simple equation such as 2 plus 2 equals 4. To even think about that or to talk about that implies the fact that you believe that there are absolute categories that are true yesterday or true today and will be true tomorrow. Whether or not you believe in absolutes, believe in God, or believe in the Bible is irrelevant. To even open your mouth and make that statement implies that you are at that point assuming that there are absolute categories and that you can communicate to somebody else. And this is exactly what we see established in Genesis 1, vocabulary and categories, so that words mean the same thing tomorrow that they, that they mean today. Origins and understanding these issues related to creation, especially in, in light of 
evolutionary doctrine and evolutionary thought is not something secondary, as I emphasized in our last class. I, two things I really wanted to get across in the last class, and I think I did. The first is the importance of creation as a doctrine. This is not some sort of secondary issue, secondary idea, that you can just say, well, that's nice, but I don't want to bring that up because that may keep somebody from trusting Christ. Number one, if that's your idea, then you have, you're sadly mistaken and you really haven't done a whole lot of investigation in the Scripture. And I have heard that objection raised by many people. That the issue is Christ. The issue is the gospel. The issue is getting saved. Creation is just a secondary sidetrack. We don't want to get off on some sort of red herring where somebody won't trust Christ or believe the Bible simply because of some doctrine such as as creation. But I showed last time and emphasized that this is a false assumption because the gospel is the story of the God of creation who is redeeming his creation. The Jesus that dies on the cross is the Jesus who created, and a Jesus who isn't the creator isn't the same Jesus who is the Redeemer. Paul always began with creation when he's communicating the gospel to a pagan audience. Now, if you go back and read through Acts and you see Peter giving the gospel, when he's speaking to a non-pagan audience, Jewish audience, with an understanding of the Judeo-Christian creator God of Genesis 1, he doesn't start there because they have a common ground in understanding who God is and, under, and having the Old Testament as a background. But when Paul in Acts 14 and in Acts 17 comes to a pagan audience, a Gentile audience, and by the word pagan I don't mean some sort of, it's not a negative comment, it's not a pejorative term, it's not an insult. Pagan is a technical term for people who don't think biblically. And when you're talking to a Gentile audience in Athens or in any Greek city, when Paul came there he began with the God of creation. Because you, before you get to the issue of Jesus going to the cross, you have to understand why Jesus went to the cross. And to explain why Jesus went to the cross and the penalty for sin, you have to go back to the fact that mankind is constitutionally a sinner, that he is corporately guilty because of Adam's original sin. And as soon as you bring in Adam, you bring in the fact that God created the first man, the first woman. You bring in the fact that God created a perfect environment in Genesis chapter 1. And it's in the midst of this perfect environment that mankind, uh, Adam and uh, Eve, or she's originally called Isha, or, which is the Hebrew for woman, Adam and Isha are placed in the garden and given a test. And all of that presupposes a God who created, a God who created a perfect environment, and a God who is the source of all absolutes in terms of right and wrong. So Paul understands this, that you can't just start with Jesus and the resurrection. You have to go back and define who Jesus is. Now, one of the things that uh, happened this last week that I found fascinating, Charlie Clough gave a quick little 30-minute discussion at lunch, and I meant to bring this book with me, but failed to. But it's a little booklet by the author of the book, The Road to Emmaus, by John, what's his name? Anybody here seen that? 
uh, the road to Emmaus. You know what I'm talking about. Well, he was a missionary with New Tribes Mission over in Papua New Guinea, and what these men discovered is after a period of time, after they had established the church and built the church there, they went back, and the people in the church who had trusted Christ are beginning to to fall away. They're going into reversionism, and they're not sticking with it. And they asked the question, okay, where did we fall? What mistakes, if any, did we make methodologically? And what they discovered is that methodologically they failed to identify Jesus as the unique creator God of the universe in contrast to all of the various pagan gods that they had always uh, believed in and worshipped. And what is typical of human viewpoint thinking and pagan thought is you don't come along when you hear about a new god. You don't come along and throw out the old gods and replace them with the new god. You just sort of absorb the new god into your pantheon. And so what happens is you're still holding on to human viewpoint and divine viewpoint and trying to merge the two together, and human viewpoint always eats up and destroys divine viewpoint. And this is the same kind of problem that the writers of the New Testament faced when they're in terms of the background is the the Greeks were so enmeshed in the idolatry of their day that they have to be deeply and profoundly challenged at the very root of their thinking to realize that you can't just assimilate and absorb Christianity in with everything else you thought. It is the fact that, that what Paul says in Romans 12:2 that you have to completely do away. You're not to be conformed to the thinking of the, this world, but be transformed by the renovation It's a metamorphosis. It's a complete overhaul of the thinking in the soul. And that begins by getting down to the very root core issues, and that is why creation is so important, because it is Genesis 1 that sets the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, completely apart from all of the other gods. There is no other God in human history that is a creator God that is distinct from the Creator. And this doctrine of the Creator-Creature distinction is really a subset of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. So when we get to the New Testament, we see that when Paul goes to a pagan audience to uh, proclaim the gospel, he doesn't begin with the cross. He begins with creation. And in fact, we saw in Acts 17 that he never gets to the cross because they reject the doctrine of creation. And, of course, some people would say, well, see, Paul, you would have really had a lot of converts if you just stayed away from this this uh, disruptive doctrine of creation. But, see, Paul would say then that you're not really preaching the Jesus of the New Testament. And it's also interesting to note that in the early church, from the time that you get the original uh, symbols of the faith, that was a technical term for creeds in the in the early church, when you go back to the old Catholic symbol, the old Catholic creeds, and then the Nicene Creed, the Apostolic Creed, and the Nicene Creed, and the later creeds, how do they all begin? They don't start with Jesus. They start, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, for those of you who grew up in a church where you recited that over and over again. The rest of you just missed out. But in the early creeds, in the early do- these were the these were doctrinal statements, summations of doctrinal positions that people memorized and recited because they 
didn't necessarily have Bibles, so this was just a, a, a nutshell way they could, they could learn the basics of Christianity. And where do they start? They start with creation. So creation is not some secondary doctrine. It is a foundational doctrine. And if you mishandle Genesis 1, then it is always going to work its way out at some place else in your theology. It's, theology is a seamless whole. Because true biblical theology, true accurate theology, reflects the thinking of God. And God is a logical God, and God's thinking is internally coherent, so that if we accurately understand the thinking of God, we will not have internal uh, problems. And what happens is when you see people come in and try to assimilate Genesis 1 to modern science, then sooner or later that's going to leak out and it's going to affect other doctrines in one way or another. And if it hasn't yet, it's just because they haven't thought very deeply or very profoundly about the issues yet, or they haven't gone to the conclusions, uh, to the natural conclusions of what they've assumed. So we have to realize the importance of, do- uh, of creation and that this was not something that was sidestepped in either the apostolic presentation of the gospel or in the early church. And creation ex nihilo, that's, our, that's the technical term that you will hear, hear me refer to many times. Ex nihilo, it is the Latin for out of nothing. That God created all that is, all matter, all energy, all light, Everything that is was created instantly from nothing. And this doctrine of ex nihilo creation was just as controversial in the 8th century B.C. as it was at the time of Christ and as it was in the 8th century A.D. because non-Judeo-Christians have always held to a short or young earth. You go back to the Old Testament, they understood the earth and the universe to be a very few years, few thousand at best. You get into the New Testament period, still believed in an earth that was created somewhere around five, 6,000 years B.C. You get into the early church, still a belief that the earth was created, the universe was created around five or 6,000 B.C. You get into the Middle Ages, same doctrine. You get into the Reformation. They still believe that the earth was not old. You come up into the post-Reformation Enlightenment period, and suddenly men develop the idea that they can come to truth apart from the Scriptures, and in Western civilization, the Scripture begins to be set aside in favor of the empirical uh, data derived through this uh, new scientific methodology developed under empiricism, which rejected the authority of God as an, as an equal authority. And the result is that uh, all of a sudden you begin to interpret the data. When you get independent from Scripture, you begin to interpret the data on the basis of human finite, on the basis of a finite human frame of reference, and suddenly creation now becomes controversial. Well, creation was always controversial when it encountered pagan thought. It has always been controversial, the idea of a, of a relatively young earth. So that brought us to the second main point that I emphasized last time, which is the time of creation. We start off with Genesis chapter 1. And we don't know when the beginning was. Was this a beginning that occurred 
millions and millions of years ago, or like Carl Sagan the pagan said, billions and billions of years ago? Or is this a relatively young universe and a relatively young earth that is not more than maybe a few thousand years old? And, of course, the Bible doesn't put a definite date on it, so we can't either. But the conclusion that I wanted to emphasize was that apart from, uh, apart from modern scientific understandings, which has changed over the years, apart from modern science, whenever any group of people came to the Scriptures and consistently interpreted it in a literal way, they always came up with a young earth. It was only when you began to bring in conclusions from an autonomous system of knowledge, empiricism, that was not governed at all by Scripture that men began to try to think, well, how can we fit a few more thousand years into the Bible? And the problem that I showed is that even on the basis of, uh, uh, first of all, that the basis for modern Modern dating is a principle called uniformitarianism. It's a principle called uniformitarianism, and uniformitarianism teaches that all things continue and decay at the same rate. William Thornberry, in his book, Principles of Geomorphology, states that this is the great underlying principle of modern geology and is known as the principle of uniformitarianism. Without the principle of uniformitarianism, there could hardly be a there could hardly be a science of geology that was more than pure description. And his point is, speaking as a geologist and an evolutionist, is that this is foundational to all modern thought about about geology and about dating rocks and everything else. If you throw out uniformitarianism, you have major problems because their assumption is that the present is the key to the past. This was first set forth in 1785 by James Hutton and was made scientific dogma in 1830 by Charles Lyell, who is the father of, considered the father of historical geology and the father of modern geology. Now, this was prophesied in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, where Peter said, Know this, first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's the uniformitarian principle, that everything continues at the same rate. Therefore, if you go out and you measure a decay rate today, then you can go back and extrapolate from a current decay rate, you can extrapolate into the past and determine how old the rocks are, how old uh, anything is, simply by extrapolating back and assuming that the decay rate has always been the same. But what about hurricanes? What about volcanoes? What about tsunamis? And one of the things that we'll get to when we get to Genesis 6 and the flood is some of the evidence that goes against this whole doctrine of uniformitarianism. For example, and when we get there, I'll bring in another videotape done by uh, Dr. Steve Austin, who's with the Institute for Creation Research on Mount St. Helens and all of and the incredible evidence from Mount St. Helens and how in just a matter of a few days, 
all of this um, all of this matter and everything that was blown out of the and magma and lava and everything that was blown out of the the volcano as it pushed down the mountains it stratified and so if you if you were to come up and look at that after it cooled it, it it's in layers various stratified layers and then there was one area where it had uh, as the, as the magma and everything pushed itself down it pushed rocks and boulders and trees and everything in front of it and it it created a dam for all of this soft molten rock that that was dammed up behind this this uh, earthen and and wood dam and it began to cool and it cooled for a period of time and then something happened that caused this this dam to break and when it did it was just like pulling the plug out of your bathtub and there was just this big suction and all of this still soft rock was just sucked out and what it created in a matter of two days was a canyon system like the Grand Canyon 140th the size of the Grand Canyon all created in a couple of days so what that demonstrates is that when you go to the Grand Canyon today and they talk about the fact that it took millions of years of erosion to create this this uh, event, that's the assumption of uniformitarianism. They just reject the fact that there's any kind of a catastrophe that could occur. Yet we know from uh, what a hurricane can do, what a tsunami can do, what a volcano can do, or an earthquake can do, that there can be major catastrophes that take place geologically over a period of just a, uh, a few months or weeks that would completely change any kind of a, of a time frame. So you have to understand that all dating schemes, and ra- from radiometric dating to carbon-14 dating, uh, is- isotope dating, all of these different kinds of dating systems are all built on the assumption that everything decays at the same rate, and therefore you can extrapolate back. Now, the point that I was making with the chart I used last time was if you if you if you have different clocks, that's what they're called, different systems of measurement, then you're going to come out with different rates. For example, there is one fossil of a whale on its tail that goes through several several layers of uh, of sediment. And this would indicate that the Earth's layers form swiftly. These are different. This is different data than what I used last time. The uh, bulging Earth, that the Earth has a bulge to it, and that this would indicate, if that's a, a steady rate, that the Earth could not have la- been in existence more than 500,000 years. The, there is a, they've measured the Earth's magnetic sphere since the time of Lord Calvin, who in fact believed, uh, argued vociferously against an uh, uh, ancient Earth. Uh, Lord Kelvin developed a system for measuring the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere in the 19th century, mid-19th century. Ever since then, they've measured the Earth's magnetic sphere, and although there have been some, some few bumps and grinds and reversals in places, uh, Dr. Humphreys, whose book on time, Starlight and Time, I mentioned last week, has done some remarkable work in in this area based on some stuff that uh, Dr. Thomas Barnes at University of Texas El Paso had done back in the 70s, showing that that if you extrapolate back on the on the this decay rate of the Earth's magnetic sphere, that the Earth would implode at about 10,000 B.C. So there must be something, if you use, they're using evolutionist assumptions, the same assumptions they apply to all of their other dating systems, if you use those assumptions related to these systems, you still come up 
with a, a mixed bag. No, nothing correlates. The Earth's core would also indicate that the, um, that the Earth is no more than 10,000 years old. The various oceans in the element indicate uh, 29 elements in the Earth's ocean indicate that it's 10,000 years or less. Eight elements would indicate the, the measurement of eight elements indicates an age of 100,000 years or less. Coral formations in the ocean indicate that the Earth is no more than 5,000 years old. Uh, river delta, the silt laid down at a river delta, would indicate no more than 4,500 years of age. Ocean sediments uh, then go the other extreme and say the Earth could be 100,000 years. Niagara Falls would indicate only a 5,000-year age. A mountain erosion would indicate 14 million years max. So you see, it just goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. There's no consistency. Uh, soil production and erosion would be 10,000 years, and oil pressure would be indicate another 10,000 years of age for the for the Earth. So the whole point is not that these are accurate ages, but that on the assumption of uniformitarianism, you don't end up with a consistency. So. My point is, once again, if you jump to the conclusion that somehow we have to find room for millions or billions of years, then you get those big numbers only from historical geology. But the assumptions on which historical geology are built are fraudulent. This uniformitarian principle won't hold up, so don't think that somehow we have to figure out how to squeeze another 10 million years into what the Bible says in Genesis. Now, uniformitarianism is simply one aspect of the problem that comes up from modern science, and that is the assumption that man can empirically know truth. Now, by empiricism, I mean that we learn information through, through the senses, through what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, and through observation, we can then come up with certain conclusions. This is the standard uh, scientific methodology. You make observations, you create a hypothesis, then you test the hypothesis, then from that you develop, a, you make adjustments, and then you develop a theory, and then eventually, if it's true in every case, then it can become a law. There's a vast difference between a theory and a law. Now, there are many things that man can learn empirically. There are many truths, lowercase t, there are many truths that man can learn empirically. Science has developed uh, many wonderful discoveries, and there are many wonderful discoveries in medicine that we all benefit from. And I'm not arguing that empiricism at some level is wrong. But empiricism, when it comes to answering the question related to origins and things that go beyond man's empirical data. See, no one was there to watch creation. No one was there to observe the Big Bang. No one was there to see the steady state theory or whatever uh, origin you have to come up with. The only one who was there is God, and he gave us a, an eyewitness account of what he did. Only divine revelation can give us that ultimate framework within which we understand truth. Now, one of the points that I'm going to make is to really understand the details within the creation. You only can understand them if you understand, uh, have the overall framework. If you are talking about a tree outside and you are talking as a creationist, then your understanding of that tree is a tree that was created by God for a specific purpose in order to facilitate the, the environment for man in the garden. But if you're an evolutionist, that's not the same tree. 
oh, it still produces apples and you make apples, apple pie from the apple tree, but it's a different apple tree. It's not an apple tree that was designed by God for the use of man. It is now something that just happens to be there by chance, and over, over a period of millions of years, certain molecules came together and just uh, by pure happenstance uh, managed to produce this kind of fruit tree. And isn't it great that we can enjoy this, but it's all chance. So see, they're two different apple trees. And everything in the creation is different if you're a creationist versus an evolutionist. So my basic point is that divine revelation is the only revelation that can provide the framework for understanding the details of creation. Let me give you an example. There are many things that Adam could learn empirically in the garden. Adam could go around and he could see that certain plants were green and some were greener than others. Some were tall, some were short, some produced fruit, some uh, could be uh, treated in different ways. Some things like grass grew and you had to cut the grass, I guess, even in the garden. But, and there were d- different fruit-bearing trees and there were different plants that had seed in them. And he could observe many, many things about the different plants the different vegetation, and the different trees that were in the garden. But no matter how much time he spent looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he could not know that if he ate that, he would be under a judicial penalty. God had to tell him that if he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would instantly die. But he could know that information empirically. So empiricism is ultimately limited. Now, we can learn some things about God through empiricism, but we can't learn specifics. For example, let's go to Romans 1, 18 through 22. Here we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what is the truth they're suppressing? It's not specific truth. It is truth related to the existence of God. Verse 19, because that which is known about God, the truth that we're talking about in verse 18, the doctrine that we're talking about is the doctrine related to the existence of God that is described in verses 19 through 21. Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. That means every single human being who rejects God's existence knows that God exists. It's evident within them. For God made it evident to them. God revealed it to them. How did he do that? Explanation in verse 20. For since the creation of the world takes us right back at the very beginning of Paul's most profound theologically developed epistle. Where does he start? With the cross? With Jesus? No, he starts with creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Now, not, this is what is called general revelation. It is nonverbal revelation. It is revelation that when you look out on the earth, you see evidence of design, you see evidence of purpose, and from that we extrapolate that there must be an intelligent designer. This is one of the major issues today 
in the discussion of origins as many non-creationist scientists are throwing out evolution because they realize that, for example, Michael uh, Behe in his book, Darwin's Black Box, shows that what Darwin knew about a molecule was was nothing compared to what we know now. Now we know all about DNA chains and and uh, uh, all sorts of other things that inform and provide intelligence, information for a molecule that was unknown 150 years ago. And so if if once you understand how much data there is inside a molecule, how much information there is in a DNA chain, then it becomes logically impossible that it could ever come together by chance. There had to be an intelligent designer. And so there's there he he and many others are critiquing Darwinism from a purely scientific standpoint and demonstrating that all of creation shows evidence of an intelligent design. But it doesn't tell us a lot about who God is. It tells us that there is this intelligent designer, that there is this omnipotent power, but it doesn't tell us anything about who he is. If, you, if, if I walk down the street and I walk down in front of your house and I see that your yard and it's very neat and the grass is trimmed and the garden is, is perfection, I know that there is somebody working in that garden and that the person who lives in that house takes good care of that garden, but I don't know anything about who you are. I simply know that you are, and I can extrapolate a few things about your character, but I don't know a whole lot. It is non-propositional information. It is non-verbal information, and therefore it's not specific. But what the scriptures show is that this is clearly enough to hold people accountable. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That means the unbeliever at the great white throne judgment cannot say, I didn't know you existed. There wasn't enough evidence. God's going to say there was more than enough evidence, and what happened is you were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness back in verse 18. So verse 21 goes on to say, For even though they knew God, they knew God, they know God exists, there is no atheist in history that did not at one time know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They suppress the truth about God. Now, I've introduced two categories, general revelation, special revelation, and what we have here is, as, as it's been described sometimes in, uh, in doctrinal and theology, is you have two books. You have the book of general revelation, and over here you have the book of special revelation. Now, what I have been arguing is a general revelation, you can derive from empiricism, certain general data, and you can get enough information to know that God exists, but you don't know how to be saved. You don't know that God is a righteous God, a God is a God of judgment and accountability, and that He is a God who is loving, and He provided a Savior through Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. You can't learn that. That can only come through special revelation, through verbal revelation, and propositional revelation. 
and we can only derive a certain amount of information generally and we only and we only know how to properly interpret that information from special revelation in other words there's a lot of things i can learn about about ants just by observing them they're they they're hard working in fact the proverbs talks about the fact that ants are diligent they're hard working we can learn something from ants but the bible limits what we can learn about ants. Ants operate in a colony where there is one queen ant and many worker ants. So what you have here is a polygamous situation. But the Bible doesn't authorize polygamy, so we can't go to the ants and learn information about marriage. And we can't go to the ants and learn information about how a social structure is to be. See, the Bible puts a boundary around nonverbal revelation and tells us how we are to interpret that nonverbal revelation. But this is contradicted by some in the creation-evolution debate. And one such person is a man by the name of Dr. Hugh Ross. Now, some of you may have heard of him or read some of his books. And the reason I'm mentioning him is because I'm usually asked, uh, questions about him on a regular basis. He is a Christian. He is not a trained theologian, doesn't know the original languages. He is an astronomer and a physicist, and he makes a number of claims in his books, including a rejection of the young earth view. In fact, he claims that when he was 17 years old, just reading, picking up Genesis and reading it for the first time, that it was more than obvious to him that Genesis 1 covered billions of years. Now, I don't know what he was smoking when he picked up Genesis and read it at that point because I've never heard anybody else come up with that, but he was already immersed in evolutionary thought, so he was reading that within his preconceived framework. Now, one of the reasons I critique somebody's thinking like this, there are several reasons I critique someone's thinking like this. First of all, because their works are published, they're out there in the marketplace of ideas, and he has a regular TV program on Uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, where he promotes his views. And so there's always people who come along and say, well, what do you think about this book, Creation in Time, by Hugh Ross and some of his other books? Second, since his views are in the public domain, they are available for analysis and critique, and we need to learn, and you need to learn, how uh, how to think critically about different issues that are raised, because none of these views that he raises are really original with him. And you're going to run into somebody along the way that holds similar views. And so by interacting with someone's ideas like this, that helps us to sharpen our thinking and our understanding of what the Scripture says. So we are simply uh, looking at a few of his things, and I'm going to spend a little more time interacting with him in the weeks to come. But he makes the statement, he makes some rather interesting statements, in view of his understanding of general revelation. Now, I want to take you back to something I said earlier. Remember I said if you start tweaking with Genesis 1, you try to shift this or change that, it's going to leak out into other areas of theology. And one of the reasons I'm using Dr. Ross is because he really shows up in what he has done. He makes a... um, a number of interesting claims in relationship to his views, which are called progressive uh, creationism. Progressive creationism. And progressive creationism is the idea that the time period 
of Genesis 1 is more than six literal 24-hour days. Progressive creationism teaches that after each creative act, there was a certain amount of diversification. So God creates, and then there's a long time period, and then he, um, then he creates something else, and then there's a lot of development and evolution, and then he creates something else. Now, this is termed, there are different terms for this that are used, like punctuated creationism and threshold evolution, and it's a different, these are really different forms of theistic evolution. But there's a progressive evolution, uh, progressive creationism. Progressive creationism has really come to represent a couple of different views. One view is, one we will interact with in detail, is, the, is called the day-age view. And that's the idea that each of the days of Genesis really represents lengthy periods of time. Thousands of years, maybe millions of years. So day one really relates to a couple of million years. Day two, a couple of million years. That's one approach. The other approach is that you have day one, a 24-hour day, where God creates X. Then you have a million years, and then you have day two. And here God creates Y. Then another million years goes by. And then you have day three. And then God creates something else on day three. And that's how it goes. And that's another form of progressive creationism. The same problems on both views. They don't hold up. A man who holds this um, uh, second view that I just mentioned where you have six days but they're just not consecutive would be a... Norm Geisler, who has done a number of fantastic things in relationship to apologetics, but his views on creation are decidedly unbiblical in my opinion. So this is how things do eventually leak out into other areas of theology. So Dr. Ross makes a statement that related to uh, nonverbal general revelation. Like this. this is what he states. He says, the plan, quote, the plan of salvation, as stated in the Bible, can be seen through the observation of the universe around us. Now, let me read that to you again. He said the plan of salvation. He didn't say the existence of God, the character of God in terms of his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his invisible attributes. He said the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is that all men are sinners, and Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man and went to the cross and died as our substitute so that through his death on the cross, his judicial payment, his substitutionary atonement, we can have eternal life. He says that's that information is available through observation of the universe around us. Thus, all human beings have a chance to discover it. The Bible is the only one of all religious writings which declares a message in full agreement with, and of course, amplification of, the gospel message seen in creation. So for for Dr. Ross, what he basically does is come along and say, General revelation is big. General will draw with a large box. Special revelation is small. It may expand on some things in general revelation, but every important detail in the Scripture is just clear from observing nature. So we can use then general revelation 
to judge and interpret special revelation. You see what he's done? He is using general revelation. In other words, he's saying that what I discern empirically can then be used to judge and interpret revelation from God, not the other way around. So by doing this, he shifts away from the historically orthodox position that general revelation communicates simply that God exists, plus a few of his omni-characteristics, and that man can infer from the creation a few ideas about God and his existence and enough ideas about God to be held accountable for rejecting God. Conclusion from this is that because Ross falls apart at his basic system of knowledge, he is going to do some damaging things to doctrines in Scripture because he's going to let empiricism be his ultimate ultimate basis of knowledge rather than uh, the Scriptures. And this is typical the typical arrogance of human viewpoint. Now let's go on and get into the text. Genesis 1.1, we began last time in the beginning. In the beginning is the Hebrew word Bereshith. It is made up of the uh, preposition Ba plus the noun Reshith. Two words. Be is a preposition meaning in, and reshith means beginning. Now in Hebrew, the word beginning is a an absolute noun. It is it is a definite noun in and of itself. In English, when we're talking about something, we can talk about we have an indefinite we have an indefinite article a or an. We can talk about a glass or a app, an apple. And it could be any of a number of apples or any of a number of things. This is not, because it doesn't have a, a definite article, it doesn't mean that you could translate it in a beginning, because Rashid is a noun like God that is inherently definite. Whether the article's there or not, it's definite. Just like in, 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 uh, when you hear the, the Brits talk, and you'll hear this now with the war on as they're talking about going to hospital, they won't put a, uh, we'll put a definite article in front of hospital or co- college or university. I went to university. They'll say, I went to university. We'll say, I went to the university or I went to the hospital. They drop it because in British English, hospital and university are nouns that are inherently definite. You don't have to have the with it to give it that definiteness. The same thing is true with the Hebrew noun reshith and as well as the Greek noun for beginning arche. When you add the preposition, normally the, even if it did have a definite article, in most cases the article would drop off. This is talking about a specific beginning and it is talking about a point in time before which there was no time, there was no space, there were no, there was no Creation. So the Bible really speaks about four different creations, uh, beginnings. The first really isn't a beginning, and that is 
God who has no beginning or end. God is eternal. He is everlasting. God is not temporal. That means he doesn't, uh, time is not a category that applies to God. Psalm 90 verse 2 states, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are, are God. God, there never, God has no beginning and no ending. He always is. The phrase in the beginning in Genesis 1-1 is the phrase that John picks up at the beginning of his gospel. He says, in the beginning. Remember, John is writing from a Jewish perspective, and that phrase in the beginning would take a Jewish reader right back to Genesis 1-1, and he would be thinking about that beginning of space-time history. In the beginning, John says in John 1-1, was the Word. The Word is a term for Jesus Christ, a title for Jesus Christ. And the word was is a translation of the imperfect, active indicative of the Greek word me, the word for existence, and it could be translated in the beginning, the word was continuously existing already. In other words, it takes us to a point of time with that phrase in the beginning. It takes us to this point in time. Here is all of the history of the universe, the history of the earth. It goes back to this one point in time when time began, when space began, and when matter began. And he says, at this point in time, the Lagos was, imperfect tense, continual action in past time. The Lagos was existing, emphasizing the eternality of the second person of the Trinity. The eternality of the second person of the Trinity. So God has no beginning or ending. He is eternal. Then we come to the second beginning in in uh, in Scripture, and that's the beginning of the angels. The beginning of the angels. The angels are not eternal. They are creatures. Now, this is where we start getting into some very important information. In Psalm 148.2, we read, Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. And the term hosts is that Hebrew word, Shabbat, which means armies. Hosts is not a term we use today, but armies is. All his armies, and it is, a, uh, it is a parallelism here, a synonymous parallelism where the angels are synonymous to hosts or armies. Then in verse 5 of that psalm, Psalm 148.5, the psalmist says, Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he commanded and they were created. Now, this is another interesting passage because in Psalm 148.5, it attributes the creation of the angels to Yahweh. This is a strong argument for the deity of Christ because when you come to Colossians 1.16, we read, For by him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, those are terms related to angels. So Paul in the New Testament says that it is Jesus Christ who creates the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Jesus Christ creates the angels. But in Psalm 148.5, it said it was Yahweh. Yahweh then equals the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a strong argument for the deity of Jesus Christ. This wasn't something invented by the church in the 4th century or 5th century. It was something that is embedded in Revelation itself and the Scriptures. 
Then we come to Job 38, 4 through 7, which is a crucial passage for understanding some dynamics in Genesis 1. God is confronting Job with his finiteness. Job has been complaining and groaning about his suffering, and is God really a just God? And God, why don't you tell me why I suffered? God's not going to answer Job. God is not uh, answerable to us for why he allows certain things into our lives. And in order to demonstrate to Job that he is God and Job is just this miserable little creature and has no right to question God as to his purposes or his actions, God begins to fire just machine gun a number of rhetorical questions to Job, all of which reinforce the idea to Job that he really has no right to question God. And in the midst of this, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So what time period are we talking about here? Laying a foundation. Those of you who are in construction, you don't lay the foundation when the building is completed. You lay the foundation at the beginning. This is your basic building blocks. This is the starting point. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. I think that this drips with sarcasm. Job 38.5. See, sarcasm can be godly at times. Job 38.5. Who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? That would be a plumb line for keeping everything straight. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Then verse 7. This is where we're going. When... See, at the point of this foundation, laying the cornerstone, sinking the bases, God says it was at this time when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, the phrase morning stars is parallel to sons of God, and the term sons of God here is the Hebrew Beneha Elohim, which we've studied in the past, and is a term that always refers to the angels. It is not talking about believers. Only when you get into the New Testament does the term becoming a son of God become a term for believers. But this is a different term. It is not the term B'nai Yahweh. Now, that term is used in reference to Israel. And one world-class theologian that I'm familiar with was reading through his systematic theology one day, and he argues against this position that, that the angels in Genesis 6, the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels, and he says, the term sons of God doesn't always refer to angels. And he quotes a verse in Deuteronomy, and he says, in Deuteronomy, I forget the passage, you have the phrase sons of God, and it's talking about Israel. But he didn't look in his Hebrew text. In his Hebrew text, it's not B'nai Ha'elohim in Deuteronomy, it's B'nai Yahweh. And it's talking about Israel as the sons of Yahweh. So you have to know the original language, which he does. He's just being careless and not paying attention to the original language. So you have the beginning of the angels, and the angels are created when God and are present when God is creating and laying the foundations to the earth. And when he is doing that, they are not divided. Notice it says, they sang together, and all the sons of God sang for joy. This would be before Lucifer fell. This would be before the angelic revolt. So God creates the angels. Then we have a beginning for man referenced in Matthew 19, 4. 
Matthew 19.4, And he answered and said, this is when Jesus is queried about divorce, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? So that is a reference to the beginning of the human race, that he made them male and female. And then the fifth beginning, which just hit me this afternoon after spending two years in the epistles of John, is that John constantly refers to another beginning. And that is the beginning of the church. So we have a fifth beginning. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now, not from the beginning of creation, not from the beginning of even Israel. This was a new commandment Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35, right before he went to the cross. So this is the beginning of the church age. So we have these four beginnings. And then we come to the next key word in our uh, verse 1, God. What do we mean by God? See, this is the problem the missionaries ran into that I mentioned earlier when they go into these pagan uh, primitive societies. And face it, when you go to your next-door neighbor and you ask, start talking to them about Jesus being the, being the Son of God and that you want to have a relationship with God, you need to trust Christ as your Savior, their concept of God living in 20th century America is not a personal, infinite God. It is an impersonal force. And so the God that you're talking about isn't the God that they're hearing you talk about, and you have to go back and clarify these things. Otherwise, when it's all said and done, they don't have a clue who they believed in because when Jesus is the Son of God, he's just the son of some impersonal force, and that's not who Jesus is in the Bible. So we have to identify who God is, and we will begin there next time with the emphasis on God in Genesis 1.1 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to come to such a greater understanding of, of creation, its importance and significance, and uh, in understanding reality and understanding everything that you have created, that you are the creator, we are the creature, and that our thinking is to be subordinate to what you have revealed to us, and we are to let your truth define our understanding of reality. As the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light. Father, we thank you for what we've learned tonight. Pray that we would be challenged by it in Christ's name. Amen.